Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. While sitting in Nairobi with Peter and Sarah, Peter turns and says, Gilbert, would you come and speak on global missions at FB Hanford? And I've been a pastor for 25 years, but I've also led a global missions organization since 2007, and some of you know that. So, so let's get started. Are you ready? Okay. There's a story in the Bible told by Jesus, Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, where a beggar named Lazarus is laid at the feet of a rich man. And the Bible says that the beggar was covered with sores and he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, a couple of things to keep us going this morning, okay, before we get to the preach. Firstly, can anyone here come up with a name of any other character in any other parable that Jesus told the name. Anyone got the name of any other character of the story of a parable? I'll give you a hundred dollars. I'll give you a hundred bucks if you can come up with the name of any other character in any other parable that Jesus ever told. And there is none, okay? I mean, you think I'm gonna give you a hundred dollars? I'm Scottish, okay? (laughs) In all the parables that Jesus ever told, not a single person, the prodigal son, the elder brother, the father, the good Samaritan, the tax collector, the Pharisees, every character in every story that Jesus ever told is anonymous, except this one about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man doesn't even get a name. Why? If you go to any party and if an incredible, wealthy, successful guy shows up and there's an uneducated, unemployed, shabby guy shows up, whose name do most people remember? It's the high status guy. But the one character in all the stories that Jesus ever told who gets a name is the homeless, diseased penniless beggar, Lazarus. Now, it's a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew name Lazarus means the one God helps. (laughs) Well, that's, that's ironic, isn't it? He doesn't look like the one that God helps. The rich guy looks like the one that God helps. The Lazarus, the beggar, he looks like the one God forgot. And every day, Lazarus lies at the gate of the rich man. 
And every day, the rich man feasts, and Lazarus sees the guests, and he hears the party, and he smells the food, and he aches, and he longs to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Now, I know I don't need to connect the dots here. Like if this was Selma, I would need to help them out here, but you guys get it, okay? We live in a world where 4.1 billion people, okay, pull that back again. We live in a world where 4.1 billion people live on $2 or less a day, and maybe food might be a milky cup of tea. Out of that 4.1 billion, 1.3 billion live on less than a dollar 25 a day. And that's defined as extreme poverty. Now, let me say it. There is poverty in America. Uh, we wouldn't call it extreme poverty. The term would be relative poverty. 43 million Americans live on or below the a poverty line, which for a family of four is $25,100 a year or $483 a week. And if you, as a family of four, earn or receive less than $483 a week, you're classed as being in poverty. And I know that's a lot of money compared to those who live in $1.25 a day, but I also understand that for those who live in relative poverty, it's still real to live in that, in that hardship within our culture. Ah, there's a whole other economic discussion that we could do a seminar on to talk about the $1.5 trillion in the U.S. budget to care and provide for those living in the U.S. poverty line, but that's a seminar for another day. This morning, I want to talk about those people who live in extreme poverty. The 4 billion people on $2 or less a day, the $1.3 billion on $1.25 or less a day. Half the world's population. It's probably very hard to do this, but you imagine your life, or even just a day, if you only had $1.25. Extreme poverty is defined as any household who cannot meet basic needs for survival sometimes defined as households living on $1.25, which would not provide basic nutrition, clean water, sanitation, shelter, health care, or education. Extreme poverty. So, how did you come to church this morning, sir? In a car. You know only 8% of the world own a car? Only 8%. Uh, how many of you households own more than one car? Don't, don't raise your hands in church. <laughs> if you earn 
Californian minimum wage, $12 an hour, you are in the top 5% of income earners in the face of the planet. And you think you're poor. If you earn $16 an hour or more, so maybe you work for a school district or you work for the hospital or, you know, maybe you're a pastor on staff here, okay? And you earn $16 an hour or more, you're in the top 1% of income earners on the face of our planet. And every three and a half seconds, a child dies from poverty-related illness. 694 children since this service began. 695 children since this service began. 696 children since our service began. 697 children. And yet for 25 cents, you can feed a kid. And every 30 seconds, someone dies from malaria, which is a treatable disease costing no more than $2. Now come back to Lazarus. Lazarus is so sick and disabled and crippled, he couldn't move himself. This man, it says in the story, was laid at the gate of the rich man's house. And then Jesus says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Why, why would Jesus put that in the story? Well, in Israel, people were generally pretty unsentimental about dogs. I mean, we know we treat our dogs like humans, but back in the day, dogs were scavengers. Dogs were regarded as unclean as pigs. If you look at the Bible, most mention of dogs, quite negative. Nobody had a dog for a pet in the ancient world. But you know that dogs will lick you as a sign of affection. But you also know that dogs can sometimes not only lick their own wounds, but lick other wounds, and they have antibodies in their saliva that bring healing. And in the ancient world, people noticed that wounds that a dog licked tended to get better, and I'm not making this up. Certain dogs were trained to lick open wounds and sores, and you'd pay a few denarii, a few, a, a few dollars to get it paid from their owners. Now, I know this question will come up. Why, why does he have dogs in the story? Why does Jesus not have cats in the story? It's, it's because Jesus does not like cats. <laughs> it's just... It's in the Bible. Don't argue with it, okay? And every day he heard the feast happening. He smelt the food. He longed for the crumbs to fall from the rich man's table. Eating is a social thing. It's a social statement. 
Like, I wrote a lot of this message as I flew coach. And six rows away through a curtain were the first-class passengers. They had their comfy chairs, and they were sipping their complimentary cocktails, and they were eating their complimentary meals. They ate, and we watched as we sipped our complimentary bottle of water with a bag of cardboard pretzels. You know, the snack from hell. At least put them, cover them in chocolate or something, you know? Uh, uh, or, or picture the school cafeteria. There's the jocks and the cheerleaders table. Then Jesus comes along and he messes up the whole order. He invites nerds and dweebs to sit at the jocks table. Eating is a social statement. Who you invite to your table says a lot about you. It's a social statement. It's also a theological statement. It's a statement about what you believe about God and what it means to follow God. It's also the basis for an excellent global missions strategy. So who gets invited to your table? Now, before you answer that question, let me take you on a quick biblical journey and place this question within the bigger question, the missional question. Who is invited to God's table? And let me detour to help set up the context. At the center of what God is about is something he calls the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes, particularly in Matthew's gospel, that will be referred to as the kingdom of heaven, primarily because the Jewish writers, Jewish listeners didn't want to ever blaspheme the name God, and so they wouldn't use the word God, and so they changed it from God to heaven. It's speaking of the same concept, the kingdom of of God. And we've changed that word from the original script. Like, we've said that what we need to be about is the church or about the gospel. But God's Son, Jesus the Christ, announced exactly what God was about. And He tells, tells us exactly what we should be about. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. In fact, everything that Jesus was about on earth centered on this thing he calls the kingdom of God. And this is at the core of any talk on missions and the world and us being involved in saving the world. Before you head out there to save the people, we have to understand what Jesus was about. So let's define what a kingdom is, because it's not really our language. A kingdom is any realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens, the range of our effective will, that sphere where what we say goes, a kingdom. And you and I, we have our own kingdoms. Like, I get into my car, and when I turn on the radio, it goes to my preferred station, 95.7 Classic Rock. Okay? 
in my car and in the shower, I do a mean Rod Stewart, okay? But you don't want to know that, okay? But my car radio, it was set to what I wanted it set to. The seat is positioned just where I want the seat positioned. The mirrors are just as I want them to be. There are no fries in the cracks between the seats. There's no trash or coins in the cup holder. There's no sticky fingers on the steering wheel. This is my kingdom. Those other things happen in the car of the kingdom of my boys, but not in my kingdom. I walk into my office. And the books are arranged just the way I want them to be arranged. My papers are in the order that I want them to be in. My sticky notes are color-coded the way that I want them color-coded. Why? Because it's my kingdom. I walk into the house at the end of a busy day. There's an easy chair with slippers lying by it. There's a Pepsi and cookies laid out just waiting for me. There are steaks cooking on the grill. Why? I've walked into the wrong home. <laughs> but here's the core message of the Bible. The gospel as it's called. Jesus is inviting people to enter now, today, into another, a new, a better kingdom, the kingdom of God. Enter into a life where at its core is the reality of living in such a way that pleases God, where God's will is done, where God reigns, where life is lived the way God designed it to be lived. Thy kingdom come, and that kingdom, seek it first, make it your priority. And when we make it our priority, boom, something happens. Something is defined for us, and what our lives and our mission, and our church must be about. Because when it comes to mission, there is something about what Jesus is about that we need to be about. And sadly, there has been a lot done in the name of global missions that has very little to, to, to do with Jesus and His kingdom. And more often, it's to do with us and our kingdom. Just ask the Navajo Reserve pastor, who has had 20 Christians turn up every summer to do short-term mission work and repaint their church building that didn't need painting in the first place. Because a team of similar Christians came and painted it last year, and the year before, and the year before. Or ask the Mexican pastor who knows that the 15 teenagers sleeping on their church floor, plus the youth pastor and two willing parents, they each raised $1,500 to come here and host a VBS that they were very capable of hosting themselves. And maybe they should have just sent the money that the church raised. And maybe with that money, the Mexican pastor would be able to employ some local unemployed people to paint their buildings while they teach the gospel to their kids in their language. 
And the Mexican pastor is not ignorant to how much money was raised for the young people to have a summer mission experience that made them feel great as they head off back across the wall to see you again next summer. 2.2 billion dollars. 2.2 billion dollars was spent in 2018 on short-term summer trips by U.S. Christians, often to convert people who live in countries where more people are converted every month through the work of their own pastors than most American churches see in a year. Who needs missionaries? Them or us? So much mission work done is helping that hurts. Mission is important. I, I lead a mission organization, but who is asking the frank, serious questions about what good is being done and whose kingdom is being extended? If you want to read this topic, then you've got to read this one. Obviously, When Helping Hurts. Very important book. Now a little bit dated, but very important. Or this one, Toxic Charity. Also very important. Or Serving with Eyes Wide Open. If you're the youth pastor here, or you're a missions person here, if you haven't read these three books, I would fire you. Because we're probably doing it in an old model that's not the right model. But I digress. Don't know how I got onto that. Let's examine what Jesus asked us to be about. And it brings me to one of the most amazing parables that Jesus ever told. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. So you've been in Luke's chapter 16. We didn't read it. But now, if you have a Bible, swing it over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. And the context, if you don't know this, you're going to miss what Jesus is saying. Uh, here's the context. In the Old Testament, to uh, Jewish Hebrew readers, the most dominant metaphor, the, the, the clearest picture of the kingdom of God, which is what we have to, to be about, our first priority, the most dominant metaphor or picture of the kingdom of God is that it was most like a banquet. A banquet. The kingdom of God is like being invited to a feast. And so who you eat with is not only a social statement, it's a statement about what God is doing and if we're eating at the right table or not. Now, if you think about a feast or a banquet, what's the thing that most comes to your mind? The menu? The decor? <laughs> the cost? But I think the thing that most comes to mind is who's invited and who's on the guest list and especially, am I getting an invite? I grew up in a church tradition that really monitored the guest list of who got in. And they didn't talk like this, but this is how it worked. They had two trinities. Like they had the holy one and then the made-up one. So the holy one was Father 
Son, and Spirit. But they had this other trinity. And in this trinity, if you wanted, in this church, if you wanted to eat at their table, join their feast, you first had to believe, and then you had to behave, and only after you believed and behaved could you ever belong. In fact, if you didn't behave even after you believed, and I know this because it happened to me a couple of times, the first thing they did was stop you sitting at the Lord's table, a precursor to the main feast. Uh, you had to sit at the back of the church, and there was a sizable gap between, yeah, just like you guys, right at the very back, okay? And that was not the popular place to sit, because if you sat there, it was very obvious to everybody else that you were being put outside, and when they served communion, it didn't get all the way back there. It stopped along the, 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 the main group. And the back row were excluded. They weren't allowed to be at the Lord's table. And I tell you, being told to sit there a couple of times changed me. And probably actually made me who I am. As a teenager, because it was as a teenager I was asked to sit there, I began to ask the questions on who doesn't the church invite in? Who do they leave out? Who's excluded from their feast? And from being a teenager onwards, I have rebelled against the gentrifying of the church. People who just look like me and act like me and behave like me. That's not the church. And it got me into heated and difficult conversations with the chief elder, the gatekeeper, who, who happened to be my father, okay? But it shaped my theology. And that theology is one of my deepest convictions. The kingdom of God, the gospel, is first and foremost for people who the rest of society has rejected. The people who always are asked to sit at the back of the bus or the back of the line or the back of the crowd. Then you, you know some of my story. I've been a senior pastor and as a senior pastor, I'd gone on this journey to search for the people who in the eyes of our society are the most abandoned and the most forgotten, the most invisible, uh, the ones pushed to the back of the line. And that led me to one of the largest slums in East Africa and to kids who were HIV positive and who had, after Live Aid and the 80s, been completely forgotten by the world and by the, and, and by the church. And eventually that led me to stop being a senior pastor and start an organization to make sure that they know they are valued and to know that they belong, that they belong in the story of my life and that they belong in the story of my friends' lives and in the story of the churches that I get to work around with in the richest state in the world. And I, I want to give them a, a front row seat in our churches and in our lives, in the story of this church, and in the story of every church. Uh, I'm not long back from Haruma in East Africa, and 
I, I got some photographs. I, I just want to show you some of these photographs, because these are the coolest kids alive, I think, okay? Uh, take a look at a few of these photographs. Can you throw them up? There, there you go. So that kid there, you might just need to pause on it for a few minutes. That kid there's just stuffed his face full with that little bowl, and that bowl is beans and rice, or it could be beans and corn. It's nutritional. It's probably the only main food that he's going to eat that day, and it's for 25 cents. And that kid will not die because of hunger-related diseases. So uh, roll, there's the next kid coming up. Uh, they're just happy kids. I don't know what happened to their teeth, okay? But they lost them, okay? But look at the state of their uniforms. We could do with a little bit better sweaters. She is absolutely beautiful. Uh, carry on. Uh, just a beautiful young girl. And then keep on going. Now, I love this picture, okay? Here's how it works, okay? Uh, stop on this picture. We're, we're standing, and uh, I mean, it's not, it's not a large school, okay? But they're all out in the courtyard, and we're up above them because we're the honored guests, and so we get to go to this upper, upper area to look down, and uh, they're just praying. This is their morning prayers, and they're praying, and this little girl just lifts her head. And you can imagine what she's praying. I mean, she's surrounded by the hopelessness of a slum where people don't escape from. 50% uh, of the girls have been abused between the ages of 12 and 19, either physically or, sex, or, or sex, sex, sexually abused. Uh, she, she maybe is living with a mother or a father, but probably there's 40% of them are orphans. 40% of them are HIV positive. So, you know, she's just praying with her eyes closed, looking up to the God of heaven and saying, God, help me. God, save us, keep us, preserve us. And here's how it works. As she lifts her head to prayer in Haruma, 11,000 miles away, there's some good people in Hanford, and God's tugging on your heart saying, what are you doing for the poor, the global poor, the 4.1 billion people that are forgotten and ignored? And God's just nudging your heart to say, help them. This is it. This is the circle of life, eternal life, hope life, the gospel life. Roll the picture. The next one. Each of these kids here are HIV positive, orphaned, but amazingly cool. And we've been telling their stories a little bit on our social media. You can follow along on our social media, actually, at the back of the church or even here at the front over by my left here. We've got the brochure. We've got this little flyer here about all of our social media. We're just telling their stories because I want their stories to be my stories. They are my stories because they're my friends and they should be our friends. Uh, we get any more pictures left? Yeah, you can roll past that one. That's the high school dorm. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> every time I go there, the workers, there's 55 staff. They just blow my mind. Uh, this is a te teacher. You can't see it. She's actually pregnant. And uh, she's just bending down to tie the shoelace of the kid. And every time I go there, uh, the teaching staff are always bending down or kneeling down and just loving on the kids. And it's such a metaphor of their heart for the children. Uh, this lady here, and this is Kenyan culture, you would never go down on your hunters as a woman. It's, it's undignified. You would always bend over fully, which must have killed their backs. But uh, uh, yeah, they're just servants of the kids. They, they, they don't lord it over them or boss them, but such love for the kids. And then I think there's maybe one more picture. Yeah, these are, if you run through these ones, these, these are the kids that aren't in the school. And I'm not meaning to run over them as if they're of no value. They're of great value, but just... You can tell by their look, by their appearance. You could see, if you could see up closely, their eyes are yellow, their snot and their nose. They just haven't got food. They haven't got cleanliness. They haven't got clean water. They're the ones we've still got to reach that you guys can help us reach. And join us in this movement. Take that brochure over here or in the back of the, as you leave at the Welcome Center. And I know Jeff and Peter and Sarah, they've all been, and I'm hoping that in 2020 or 2021, I take some of you and you can spend some time in Haruma. 
and you can see firsthand what's happening and you can learn about the billions of people who are living in extreme poverty for no reason other than the fact that's where they were born. And they didn't choose that. But should where you were born determine if you live? I don't think so. I think that's injustice. And the gospel's about justice. And Jeff will tell you, we don't build things, we don't make things, we don't run things, we just go and hang out. And we just share our lives and invest in the leaders and the children for a week and be excited if some of you came. But run with me now to Luke's gospel chapter 14 because I promised I wouldn't ever be as long as Peter, okay? Uh, Luke's gospel chapter 14 and there's some very neat stuff happening in the first part of this chapter. Uh, Jesus, it says, verse one, Jesus went to dine at the house of a leader of the Pharisees and they were watching him closely. Uh, In other words, Jesus has been invited to a feast, to a banquet, to a party, okay? And the story, remember, ding, 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 ding. The story is not just about Jesus going to a feast. The scriptures are revealing the nature and the texture of the kingdom of God. Who gets to the feast? Who's on the guest list? And uh, this was a big problem for the Pharisees and the religious people, because that's whose house he was going to. You see, they had a guest list of who they thought was invited to share God's banquet. They had a guest list of who was in and who was out. Um, Let's just say it. You and I have our lists too. Who are the people whose sins particularly offend you? You would have them clean up their act before they could ever sit at the kingdom on the table of God. Uh, The truth is you don't like these people. You don't really want them here. Maybe people from a different different ethnic group. Not that, we would, not that we would ever think that we're prejudiced. <laughs> but you don't do anything to invite them to the table. They can go to their own table where they speak their other language. People who you know aren't worth something to you. Like you're not going to get anything from them if you befriend them. People who, in your eyes, are the Amharats, the poor, the immigrants, the nobodies. My friends in Haruma. Now, come with me down here. We'll not talk about the man with dropsy and how that was a setup and etc. But let's come down to verse 7. Then when Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. Now, Hang with me. It's called a triclinium. A triclinium, okay? Uh, A triclinium is like three sofas in a U-shape, okay? And it was a strictly Jewish way of hosting a feast. There would be three invited, honored guests plus the host. And they would lie out on the sofas to eat the feast, 
you know, on their side, long chairs, drinking the wine and the grapes. See, it's not just teenagers that eat lying down. It was the honored Jewish guests on the triclinium, okay? And there would be other people invited, but not as honored. And they would have to stand around the triclinium, and they could reach in and have some food, but they weren't allowed to sit on the sofas, and then there would be others who would just be people standing and not eating, just watching. This explains this declining list. And it's kind of weird for us, but it explains verse 1, how when he went to dine, they were watching him closely. And remember, he notices that they all take the place of honor. One of the three seats on the triclinium. And remember, ding, 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 ding. He's teaching what life in the kingdom of God is like. But come to the real fun part, verse 15. This is one of the greatest stories Jesus ever told. It's maybe entitled in your Bible, the parable of the great banquet. One of the people eating him, e eating with him, an honored guest, an insider, he opens his big mouth and he says, verse 15, blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. Like a big amen by someone who's a bit slow at the dig that Jesus has been making. And Jesus turns to him and he says, well, can I talk about that a little? And he now tells a story of a great banquet. And remember, the banquet is the metaphor, the picture of the kingdom of God. And whatever kind of banquet it was, you can be sure that the invites to come were sent out weeks before the event. That invite was to ask for a reply. We ask for the same. We call it RSVP. Well, in the story that Jesus told, verse chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, the RSVPs were in. Now, the weeks had passed since the invites went out, and it's now only a few days before the actual banquet. And in this culture, what did they not have? They didn't have clocks or iPhones or calendars, okay? And so a servant would go to those invited and inform them, hey, remember, the banquet's on Friday. And the servant goes out to all the people who were already on record as saying they were coming, and one by one, they start to bail. The first said, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. <laughs> the other says, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going out to examine them. And another said, I just got married. I cannot come. All bogus excuses. Now, what's going on here? Is, is Jesus just talking about the need for commitment? No. These were the three A-list guests. These were the three honored guests. These were the people who would take the honored places on the triclinium. If they didn't come, the host would be humiliated. These were the three big guys, the guests worth having. 
And they were making a deliberate attempt to snub and humiliate the host. The excuses given were so ludicrous, and all three of them giving them men, this was a concerted effort to hurt the host. If they didn't come, the banquet would not happen. Now picture the scene as Jesus is telling the story. He's sitting at the table as one of the honored guests on the triclinium. After one of those other sprawling guests on the triclinium had burped out, how great it will be to eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, I am the servant. And I'm making the announcement that God's feast is about to begin. But people are refusing to come. You can begin to feel the heat, smell the tension. Things around this table are going to get a little bit hot. And now an extraordinary thing happens, says Jesus. Everybody imagines that the banquet will now be over. The honored guests are saying no. But the master who's hosting the banquet says, uh-huh, this feast is going to happen. This banquet will take place. And if it doesn't happen with the honored guests invited, then it will happen with the riffraff and the nerds and the outsiders our friends from Haruma. So watch what happens, verse 21. Verse 21, the master says to his servants, go out quickly, invite other people into this banquet. In other words, inviting people to the table trumps everything else going on. The servants told to be all over it. Now look at verse 22, still there is room. It's an extraordinarily brilliant phrase. That's why you and I are at the table. Go back to Luke's gospel, chapter 13. From the east, the west, the north, the south. We, we are the fellowship of the dweebs. Because there was still room. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Now, if a rich master invited an ordinary dweeb, the polite thing to do would be to decline it. I'm not in the right social status to accept that invite. But the servant was told, don't take no for an answer. Verse 23, so that my house may be full. This is the heart of God. People snub him, but it doesn't take the huff. His heart is so desiring of people to come and sit at his table, to enjoy his table, to eat with him, to be his friend, to be part of his banquet, to come into his kingdom. And he's compelled to go to the highways and the byways and compel and urge and call all people to come. Now, about to finish. So come back, listen in if you've tuned out. Here's the incredible truth. One day, one day you took your seat at this table 
in the kingdom of God. So did I. You and I took our seats because one of God's servants cared enough about you and me to tell us there was room. And we were on the guest list. Cared enough to say, you're invited. God's asking you to come to sit at his table, to enjoy fellowship and communion, to know his grace and forgiveness, to be a part of his feast. You're welcome. You come, you come, you come. Perhaps it was a mom. Perhaps it was a dad. Perhaps it was a pastor from a pulpit. Perhaps it was a youth leader. But someone cared enough to say to you and to you and to you and to you and to you, come. You're welcome. You're invited. There's room at the table. And just take a moment. There's still room. There's still room. And maybe this morning you don't know that or maybe this morning you don't think that. Maybe you've come here for many weeks now with a spouse or with a neighbor, and yeah, they're included, they're welcome, they're in because they've got their act together. But I'm not really, I'm just coming to satisfy my spouse, or I don't really belong here. Oh, you do. You do. It's the fellowship of dweebs. It's not about believing and then behaving. It's about just belonging because Christ is inviting you just to come as you are. It's a fellowship of sinners. Sorry if the church often acts like a saint, but we're the fellowship of sinners around the table of a forgiver. But we finish with asking two questions. Because you see, the thing about the parables is he's always got a sting in the tail. That's how he taught. Oh, you can read it as a pleasant story about him calling out a big, fat, honored guest. Or you can see the sting that he's going to throw our way. Two questions. And then we're finished. And these are million-dollar questions for the good people of FBH, everyone who calls this church home and where this church is going. Question number one, are you ready? If you haven't fastened your seatbelts, fasten it. Put on your crash helmet. Question number one, is there room at your table for the poor? Do you know any Lazaruses? The only character in all of the stories that Jesus ever taught was the poor guy who he gave a name, Lazarus. It's hard to have a relationship with a nameless person. He names him, expecting you and I to have a relationship with him. Question number one. Question number two, who are you bringing 
to the table? Who are you going further than you've ever gone before to reach with the message of Christ? I mean, look. A quarter of the seats are empty. Why? Why? The greatest message. The only Savior. And you're celebrating yourself at the feast. And you're not going out as far as you can go and as quickly as you can go. And with the utmost priority, compelling others to come to know this Christ, to receive this love, to know this grace. Two questions you have to answer. Let's quiet in our hearts and pray before Peter comes and closes us off. Oh God, we search our hearts. Are the poor just a nuisance? If they didn't have as many children, if their governments weren't as corrupt, think how much we give them as a country. But who do I know? Which Lazarus am I caring for? Gets very personal, God. And then I think of my neighbors and my friends, people who don't know Christ. Am I at all burdened that they're not here, that they're not knowing that they've got a seat at the kingdom of God? So move in our hearts, God, this week, that we may not be like the overindulgent, selfish, religious Pharisee, but we may see that there are four billion people who need our care and many who we can invite to this place. We ask you to stir our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.